tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. There's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. It's a, it's a swell feast day today, St. John of the Cross, San Juan de la Cruz. So, uh, um, you know, uh, St. John of the Cross, I think, is much misunderstood. In what sense? <laughs> well, uh, the idea of the dark night of the soul. I think a lot of people, when they're in a bad mood, they think it's a dark night of the soul. Oh, it's much, much more than that. Uh, um, you know, uh, it's just, I, I, I don't. I don't, um, you know, I don't uh, um, pretend to know what the dark night of the soul really is, uh, because I, I think it's something very, very important. Um, the dark night of the soul is is his masterpiece. Um, you know, I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure I could define the dark night of the soul. It's about the journey of the soul from its bodily home to union with God. It happens in the dark, which represents hardships and difficulties met in detachment from the world. I'm reading, of course, from a text. And reaching the light of union with the Creator. You know, I'm not saying this spontaneously. If I was, if I was saying this on my own, there'd be a lot more ums. But um, there are several steps in this state of darkness. Uh, the main idea behind the poem is the painful experience required to attain spiritual maturity and union with God. It isn't just the difficulties of life. It's, 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 I, I think it, now this is me because you can hear me umming. Um, the, it's about the longing for God. I, if I understand the dark night of the soul at all, it's not about how come everybody's dumping on me, I'm miserable. That's kind of the dark night of the narcissist, but the dark night of the soul, I suspect, is 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 the 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 longing for God, uh, and most of us really long for things just short of God. <laughs> I do. I mean, uh, uh, there's a great deal of spiritual maturity in that. Um, Oh, I'm, I'm off. Well, let's pray, and then I'll tell you a story. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me finish this soliloquy on the dark night of the soul, about which I know almost nothing. 
you know, living living deeply on the surface of things as I try to do. But just kidding. Uh, well, not so much. The the uh, I remember hearing a story which I've shared with you twenty times about uh, a little kid who says to his mother, "Mom, if God is real, why can't we see him?" And she says, "Go ask your father. I'm busy." And Dad is on the couch with the channel changer. He says, "Dad, if God is real, how come we can't see him?" And um, he said, "Go ask your mother. I'm busy." <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. Dad would never be sitting on the couch with a channel changer, would he? The uh, well, so they both mom and dad kind of blew him off, and well, he's going fishing that weekend with his grandpa. And it's one of those beautiful fall nights up in how it, I always picture it in Minnesota. Those lakes are so beautiful. You can see 20, 30 feet straight down. The water's so clear in some of them. And, uh, you know, some of those fall mornings when the wind isn't blowing, the, the, the lake is like glass and the colors are vivid. And he says to his grandpa, Grandpa, if God is real, why can't we see him? Grandpa looks at the kid and then he looks away. And the kid thinks, great, grandpa's going to blow me off too. And then he turns back to the kid and he says, Junior... At this point in my life, God is about all that I see. That, to me, is about the dark night of the soul. Longing for God. It isn't just longing <laughs> to not have all this, this mess in my life, which is going to be there. It's, 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 it's a, a beautiful song. Again, this is not news if you listen to me regularly. Um, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will go, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I am not there yet. I'm still looking at things and this I want and this I need. No, gosh, how come I have to put up with this? And instead of saying, oh, it's all straw, except for, except for God's love, you know? That's, that's, has, I think that if I'm wrong about this, if there is a great spiritual director or, or a, a saint, <laughs> well, you don't even have to be a saint, but someone who has studied this stuff listening and I'm wrong, please call me. But I really think that so many people talk about, I'm going through a dark night. Well, you may be, but it's not exactly what Juan de la Cruz, John of the Cross meant. But that said, let's go to the big books on the coffee table, the Bible. The big book on the coffee table. Did we already do that? Ah, there it is. Well, let's knock off the gospel quickly. Luke, the seventh chapter, the 18th verse and following. At that time, John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? My theory, which I think is wrong, was that John, uh, um, uh, at the end of his life, well, you know, didn't John know Jesus? He baptized him in the, in the Jordan. You know, he was his cousin. Shouldn't, shouldn't he have known this is the Messiah? What's going on here? It seems to contradict uh, the other passage of Scripture about the baptism of the Lord. Not at all. John summoned two of his disciples and said, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? My theory, as I've mentioned, which I think is wrong, uh, is that at the end of your life, you've given your life for something and you just want kind of an extra reassurance that it hasn't been, that you haven't wasted it, that you haven't been wrong. But the fathers of the church, one of the, the church fathers, I forget which one said, no, no, no. John did not send his disciples uh, for his own benefit. He sent them for their benefit. And that makes sense to me. 
because as I pointed out, there are there's still 60,000 people in the world, give or take. Now, I put it this way, and someone corrected me in a letter, and actually they're right. Uh, but there are 60,000 people in the world called the Mandeans, M-A-N-D-A-E-A-N-S. You can look them up. They're a Gnostic sect in the Middle East. Uh, and, and they have all sorts of interesting little relics of different religious epochs. But they regard John the Baptist, I said, as the Messiah. He's no, he's the greatest of prophets, strictly speaking, in the Mandean, uh, in the Mandean uh, uh, belief system. I say that qualifies for Messiah, but strictly speaking, the person who corrected me is quite right. But moving along with that, in a sense, John the Baptist still has sixty thousand followers. And we see in the Acts of the Apostles that uh, Paul asks a group of people, uh, with whose baptism did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? And they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Well, with what baptism were you baptized? With the baptism of John. Oh, well, there's a little bit more to the story here. Uh, and they're baptized in the name of Jesus and receive the uh, the the gift of, of tongues and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so... Uh, they were followed. That was 30 years after the execution, uh, or at least well, probably 30 years after the execution of John the Baptist, uh, close to 30 years. Well, so John the Baptist wasn't just a lone voice in the desert. He was clearly a person who had a great following. Um, so that said, um, the Gospel of John, remember John the Evangelist, who I believe to be the author of the fourth gospel, he had been a follower of John the Baptist. And you'll notice how the Gospel of John is written in such strange language relative to the other three. Uh, what's going on? Well, I believe the Gospel of John was written for a specific purpose, which we discover in the second to the last chapter of the Gospel. These things have been written that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Some translations have it. <sighs> Who's the you in that? The you in that are, the, I believe, the followers of John the Baptist. And Papias, an early Christian bishop, I think within the first century after Christ, wrote that, that the gospel of uh, uh, John was written to clarify the relationship of the ministry of Jesus and John. That's, if I recall my patristics courses, that's what he said. So that's the purpose of the, the gospel of John. Uh, to tell the followers of John the Baptist that John was not the Messiah. John said he wasn't the Messiah. You know, all know it. Gee, he said Jesus is the Messiah. He must decrease, I must increase. So that fits in very nicely with this gospel and the interpretation that John sent his followers to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? And Jesus didn't say, yes, I'm the Messiah, because lots of people said, oh, I'm the Messiah. He said, what, go tell John what you see in here. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed to them, and uh, blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. These are all Old Testament miracles. These are all quotes from the Holy Scripture, uh, that, 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 uh, from, from the Hebrew Scriptures. These were, in a sense, the, the, the Messianic... Um, expectations. Uh, so uh, we see th those exact phrases in the Old Testament. So moving along, I think that, that that's, that's the right answer, that, that uh, that's why uh, John the Baptist 
uh, sent his disciples to Jesus. Now let's go to the first reading. It's a tough, tough one to tackle. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light and create the darkness. I make well-being and create woe. I, the Lord, do all these things. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> that's kind of, 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 well, that's kind of difficult. Um, what's really going on there? Well, if you look at the whole chapter, uh, it's, it's really quite different. Uh, go to the beginning of chapter 45. This, thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, who was Cyrus. He was the Persian emperor, uh, the Shah of what we would have called in our times, the Shah of Iran. And he lived, oh, let me guesstimate. He lived around hmm, 530 BC. And here he is called anointed. This is the first verse of chapter 45. He's called anointed. And the word in Hebrew for anointed is Messiah. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah, Cyrus. Whoa, what do you mean? He was the Messiah. He was anointed. That's what the word Messiah means, Mashiach. So uh, this is Cyrus. Um, I will go before you to level the mountains, the bronze doors I will shatter, iron bars I will snap. And that is probably a reference to the, the gates of Babylon. Cyrus uh, was this great, great emperor who conquered the Babylonians uh, and and established this this great empire. Uh, now, the, remember, the, the Jews had been uh, carried off to uh, to exile in Babylon. And when Cyrus comes in, uh, he, he, he's a great respecter of religions. And there's a fascinating uh, article that's been found. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's an ancient clay cylinder in, on which is written this, this, um, this statement in the name of uh, Cyrus the Great. And it says that, that um, people should go back and worship their gods. And this is referred to in the scriptures that, that he sent the Jews back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And um, this is borne out by, by an archaeological discovery uh, regarding this, this Persian emperor who conquered the Babylonians. It's, it really is a fascinating, um, a fascinating uh, thing. Well, let's get back to the text here. All right. Where did I put the text? Okay. Uh, I will give you the treasures of darkness. What does that mean? Well, treasures that are hidden in the dark, riches hidden away that you may know I am the Lord. What happened? The temple treasures, which were just in a storage storage closet, they were given back to the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. It isn't like occult arcane knowledge. Now, I'm going through this whole chapter because you have to understand it to understand today's reading. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen one, I've called you by name. Uh, um, uh, and giving you a title. Well, that isn't quite what the text actually says. Uh, let me see. I actually looked it up, and here it is. Uh, um, okay, where did I put it? Where did I put it? It's, uh, you are precious and honored in my sight. Uh, I will, well, let me see here. Let me see. Let's go back to the text. No, not beagle's wings. Okay. Um, this idea, I, I actually have to admit, um, further on in the text, it says, though you didn't, do not know me, I am the Lord, there is, no, there is no God besides me. It is I who arm you, though you do not know me. 
I am having the far, hardest time finding that in the text. It's in this text, but I can't find any of the biblical text uh, where it says, though you do not know me. So, uh, well, let's get back to the, the reading du jour. Uh, this is, of course, it's much trun- truncated. What is this idea I make well-being and create? Well, he's talking about the exile uh, uh, of, of the Jews to Babylon. Why did you do this? Well, you weren't following my covenant, uh, but I mean, nothing touches us without at least the permission of a father who loves us. That's a tough thing because lots of bad things happen to us. Why does God allow bad, well, to quote the book, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, we question whether there's, we're, we're such good people. I'm not that good a person. I don't deserve God's favor, and that's the point of this. But still, I have it. Why still does God allow difficult things to happen? And I I say this constantly. This is kind of ties into the soliloquy on the dark night of the soul. Most of us think we love God, and I'm including myself in this us. We think we love God, but we really love the blessings of God. Uh, you've heard the story of the of the uh, of the fellow who falls off the cliff and uh, grabs a branch and he shouts to heaven, "God, if you're real, uh, save me!" And a voice comes from heaven, "If you trust me, my child, let go of the branch." The guy cries out, "Anyone else up there?" <laughs> That's that's kind of the way I would pray, you know, uh, that, that I love the things that God does for me. And he's so generous and good. He's been so kind to me. But when God isn't kind, do you still love him? You know, I, I, I think about that with uh, Jesus in the Eucharist. When he said to the Jews, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life in you. They say, this guy's not the Messiah. He's nuts. That's disgusting. It's certainly not kosher. And he looks at the, at the 12 and he says, will you also leave? And they say, Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of everlasting life. In that moment, they saw all their hopes of glory and power come the revolution evaporate. And that's, of course, I think where Judas decided, I have to get out of this mess. This guy's nuts. Well, Peter said, where else would we go? In other words, they were following Jesus because of Jesus, not because of what they were going to get out of it. Are you following Jesus because he's Jesus. Is your longing for God? Or is your longing for the good things God can give you? And the Lord allows moments in the life of every believer when he thinks he will never be happy again. He will never, that there's nothing in this for him. And God is saying, will you follow me? I make well-being and I create woe. God allows these things to happen that we might know our own intentions and when we realize that we're just following God for the perks, then we can say, Lord, help me to love you for yourself. All right, that said, we're going to go to a break. We'll come back with some letters, and, uh, and I'll try not to create any woe. Oh, whoa. Oh, 888-914-9149. The phones will be open. 888-914-9149.
This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com. It's the most wonderful time of the year With the kids jingle belling and everyone now you telling all know, you be you all know that, that I like to play this song at Lent. So that is the most wonderful time of the year. Oh, Christmas is lovely. It's Moving along, let's go to, to letters. That's what we do at this point, don't we? Okay. I got one. Uh, um, I got yeah. I got a bunch of letters here. The piece you wrote. Oh, I mentioned that. Um, uh, um, and I haven't heard. Uh, um, uh, it was a letter I wrote. Oh, this has got to be thirty years ago. And it, it somebody put it in a magazine without my permission, and it just got reprinted. About I'm not making this up. About a million times, and the idea was that that I was I was tired of sitting in the throne that belonged to Christ. And you know, the Blessed Sacrament has not always been in center spot in Catholic churches. In the Middle Ages, it, it wasn't, um, but it is. It, it was for centuries, and that's most appropriate because people have lost their 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 sense of the Eucharist. I just heard of a. A very prominent priest in Italy. I said, "Well, the Eucharist is overemphasized." I thought the Eucharist can be overemphasized. I don't think so. Um, that's got to be a mistake, a misprint. But uh, I, I was just browsing, browsing the web today. But uh, I, I can't believe that 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 that's a true story. It's just ridiculous. But that anybody would say the Eucharist is not central. That's why, at a certain point. The Holy Spirit, I think, decided to put the tabernacles in midpoint in the church. And people say, well, that's not that's not so important. You know, that that's just kind of a conformity. I remember we would have this when I was in college, we had this Bible throne and we would have these different times of the year when we would enthrone the Bible. Of course, the tabernacle is off to the side because, you know, that you don't have to put it in the middle. To, that's oh, the Bible throne was always right in the middle. Because human beings work on symmetry. What is most important is what is central in our gaze. And though the, 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 the tabernacle, the place of repose of the Blessed Sacrament, has not always been in the middle of the church, for centuries it has been to remind us what we really are about. We're about the presence, the real presence of Christ in the world. We are its vehicles. So... At any rate, so um, uh, if I could, I can't find that letter. I'm sorry, but well, we'll keep looking. All right, now I got one here. Um, let's see here. I got one that's going to be tough to answer that I really want to answer. Okay, yes. Um, uh, this person was listening to a uh, uh, um, something on on the. Uh, um, Scapulars, who is a former Catholic. Uh, so she has a complaint. This is why she's a former Catholic. My friend, now deceased, frantically and fearfully wore a scapular as, as a rabbit's foot. It did not work uh, for her during her short life. She died of colon cancer at age uh, 44. 
She lived quite a fearful life due to Catholic rules and laws. She always had a nervous breakdown prior to and after confessions because she feared forgetting to confess something. What kind of church does this to people? She ended up practicing Buddhism, thanks. Catholic Church didn't do that to her. Um, it is clearly taught that if you forget something, if you legitimately forget something in a confession, it is absolved. And the scapular is about a way of life. It isn't a magical talisman. We don't believe in talismans. You know, it's okay to disagree with the Catholic Church. It's not okay to disagree with what you think the Catholic Church teaches. If you have an honest disagreement with what the Catholic Church teaches, it's a free country. But it is very foolish to disagree with what you think the Church teaches. Um, confession is meant to be consoling and, and, and healing. It's one of the sacraments of healing in, in a certain sense. Uh, scripture makes that point. Confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. Now, admittedly, there have been penitents and there have been confessors who haven't understood that fully. But if you are a disciple, remember Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. We don't do that. We treat our religion as if it were one of the old religions, that there are these magical formulas and rules by which I can attain God's love. No, we start with God's love. And he gives us these rules because he loves us. Don't touch that. It'll hurt you. Don't don't take that. It's poisonous. That, that the law of God is grace and mercy and love. And the person who we've always taught and always believed, not, not all Catholics, but the church teaches that, that we can avoid the flames of hell, which are real, by seeking the mercy of God. Um, that may not be your experience of Catholicism, but it certainly is mine. And I grew up in the 50s when, there were, when people were tough. And admittedly, there were some people who loved to put the fear of God in others. But thank God I had people in my life who taught me about the mercy of God, which is the heart, to me, it's the heart of the Catholic faith. So what kind of religion does that? The old religion does it. You know, Cardinal George uh, um, was, a mission, was a missionary, and he was part of a missionary order. And he told the story of when he went up to Alaska to visit a person who was indigenous, uh, an Aleutian native. Um, and uh, this, this indigenous woman... She was older. She had been raised as a pagan in a world of pagans. And he asked her, what was the best part of being baptized? And she looked at him and she said, I didn't have to be afraid of the gods anymore. That woman had understood the Catholic faith because she studied it. Um, I didn't have to be afraid of the gods anymore. And this idea of, of being afraid of the gods, if you, if you really experience Catholicism as Jesus designed it. It is a religion of, of, of great consolation and great hope. I don't know what else to tell you. My experience was not that. I have a very dear relative who was long dead, who had a case of terrible scruples. Uh, it was a psychological problem with her. And when she would go to confession, the priest would say, all you have to do is tell me your name and I'll give you absolution. He didn't want to torture. He didn't want to uh, make her life miserable. And she, through... Uh, the grace of God, and by discovering uh, a deeper faith, she was freed from her scruples. So I don't know what to tell you. Um, uh, I, I imagine that this woman stood before God and he said, you know, I love you. 
So I don't know what else to say, but the religion you're describing, I, I, I don't know it. I've known people who, who may have known that, but that was not the religion I was taught. All right, let's see. Well, let me look at the time here. I, let me do another letter. Um, okay. I'm confused. This is by Michael. I'm confused by the biblical accounts of the two people crucified along Jesus. Both Matthew and Mark state that these two joined the others in reviling Jesus. John 19.18 reports that two others were there, but says nothing about their responses. Of course, John was an eyewitness. Luke, the 22nd chapter, or about Matthew and Mark. Did I say Luke uh, before? Luke, however, paints a very different picture with the famous exchange in which the repentant person is told that he would be with Jesus in paradise that day. This would seem to be a contradiction. Perhaps one logical explanation is that the penitent criminal initially reviled Jesus. He then thought better of the situation and repented. Um, yeah, that might be. Um, what does the church teach about this detail? The, the, the tradition of the church. I don't know that it could, you could say it's a teaching, a doctrine of the church, but it is the tradition of the church that, that Luke had the story right. Um, I always recommend regarding these things, a wonderful book written by, uh, oh, Reverend Lee, uh, what's his last name? Why can't I think of it? A Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. Um, who is an evangelical minister. He was an atheist who set about to disprove Christianity by disproving the resurrection. And lo and behold, he's now an evangelical minister. Um, Lee Strobel. Um, he was a, a crime reporter, I believe for the Chicago Tribune, award-winning reporter, and he used his journalistic skills to debunk Christianity. Well, he got thoroughly bunked. Uh, he, he looked at the texts of scripture, investigated them thoroughly, and he realized this is good reporting. And one of the points he makes is that if you have a bunch of witnesses and they all tell the exact same story, they've been coached. This is an interesting idea. At no time in its history did the, did the officials of the Catholic Church sit down and say, you know, we've got to get our story straight. Are there two angels at the resurrection? Did he go to Galilee? Did he stay in Judea? No, the Catholic Church has passed down what it has received. And for people who say, sola scriptura, only the Bible, you can thank the Catholic Church for preserving the Bible in its entirety over the centuries and not changing it to suit their own needs. He also makes the point that witness testimonies vary. They tell the same story, essentially, but being human documents, you will get one witness saying one thing, another witness saying another thing about the details, but the nucleus of the story remains the same in good testimony. So the fact that these testimonies vary gives credence to the idea that they are, in fact, eyewitness testimonies. Some of them are eyewitness testimonies by second hand. Some are eyewitness testimonies by first hand. And the Gospels are not biographies of Jesus. They contain biographical matter. They are biographical, but they're written to make a point. And the point that, that one is trying to make is not a point that the other is trying to make. I believe that the Gospel of Matthew was written to make the point Jesus is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Mark, that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Luke is a legal document defending Paul in his trial. And John, as I said earlier in the program, was written to show the disciples of John the Baptist that Jesus was the Messiah. 
God has used them as Gospels. But the only one that claims to be an actual Gospel is the Gospel of Mark. The rest do not call them Gospels. And while we don't really know who wrote them, yes, we did. The fact that they are not, no one says, I, Matthew, am writing this. I, Luke, am writing this. That's because everybody knew who wrote it. Later documents, they use these names. Uh, this is the Epistle of Barnabas. Well, they have to point out who it is because they're lying. or they're, It's called pseudepigraphical. It was a style of literature in the ancient world. But the four Gospels are never attributed in the text of the Gospel to their authors because everybody knew who wrote them. They didn't have to be. So, uh, and the same is true. Paul's letters, some of them uh, identify him, some don't, do not. But, uh, but they were letters. Just sign a letter. The Gospels, these were, were accounts written by people who were eyewitnesses or hearers of eyewitnesses. Read Case for Christ. And uh, the contradictions simply, um, how do you say that? Uh, simply back up. Uh, the truth of the gospel. Um, it sounds counterintuitive, but when you think about it, yeah, it's true. Catholic Church hasn't changed a word of what it's received, and uh, this is the way witness accounts work. They're, they're, they vary in, in details, but not in the main point. With that said, we're going to take a break. I'm going to come back with the word of the day, and we are phone phone open at 8... Uh, 877-914-9149. I got that right. Uh, 888-914-9149. Do call in and try to stump the Reverend Know-It-All. Something much easier to do than you'd think. The Spirit's up. We're here tonight. And that's enough. Like the ones I used to know Where those streets are Listen Well The voice in my head Delights In tormenting me <laughs> With lousy Christmas music That last Christmas music Christmas song by Paul McCartney We are having a wonderful Christmas time It simply repeats The, the, the moving lyrics that we are Having a wonderful Christmas time We are The reason that he's singing that Is because he has no idea what Christmas is about <laughs> That's All he can do is sing vapid songs um, About Well, nothing at all So uh, We have a Scrooge in our midst All right that said, let us go to the word of the day. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Oh, certainly it does. It does. It does. Um, <clears throat> the end of the first reading, we see the Lord shall be the vindication and the glory of all the descendants of Israel. Well, that what's what's he trying to say there? The, the word vindication, when I hear vindication, I hear I'm right, you're wrong, neener, neener. Um, <clears throat> that's not what the text means at all. The word here is, is, um, is, uh, in the Lord shall you be justified, uh, which is yishtaku, which was from the, 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 the word tzedakah. It's, it's just righteousness, justice. It was the word of the day last week. The voice of my head is saying to me, but it's such an important word that, that we don't want to, to, 
uh, we don't want to say I'm right, you're wrong. It's it's almost the opposite, because the word tzedakah means righteousness. It also means charity. That generosity is an essential part of um, <coughs> generosity is an essential part of of charity uh, <coughs> or of, of righteousness. You can't be said to be godly. You know, I've pondered this for ages. What is righteousness? It is it is to reflect the nature of God. And appropriate to the season now was is the the um, um, the uh, um, the story of Saint Joseph. Saint Joseph was a righteous man. He did not want to expose Mary to the penalty of the law. When we think of righteous, we think of someone who does want to expose you to the penalty. I'm righteous, so you're going to burn at the stake. Uh, that's not righteousness. That's not tzedakah. And and uh, the voice might just remind you the word tzaddik. A tzaddik is a man whose all of whose deeds are right or who, whose deeds are righteous. The majority of his deeds are are righteous. And and God alone is perfectly righteous. All his deeds are righteous. But the tzaddik, the righteous man, reflects the generosity, the mercy, and the truthfulness of God. Um, so so when we hear that, uh, you will be vindicated. No, you will be made righteous. You'll be shown to be righteous. Um, I, had, I, 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 had, I think I told you this a couple of weeks ago. I had a wonderful time in Texas with Red Sea Radio. Delightful. Uh, and got to go to the Catholic Center uh, at St. Mary's on, on uh, Texas A&M. What a wonderful, wonderful outpouring of grace is going on there. That said, uh, um, uh, where did I go with this? Somewhere about, oh, I, I, in the airport I had a conversation, a long conversation with uh, an observant Orthodox Jew. And for Jews, Joseph in the Old Testament is the... Um, is is a paragon of righteousness because when he had the opportunity and humility uh and he, when he had the opportunity to take revenge on his brothers he did not he loved them and took care of them that's righteousness so your your when when the text says uh, uh you know i i would translate it a little differently if i can find where i put it uh that um uh, in the Lord shall be the righteousness and the glory of all the descendants of Israel. Before him in shame shall come all who vent their anger against him. Uh, only in the Lord are just deeds and power. In the Lord shall there be righteousness and the glory of all the descendants of Israel. That for all of the, 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 the cruelties of the nations and the cruelties uh, <clears throat> of those who vent their anger against God, the Lord will show his righteousness. In other words, his his truth and generosity in a wonderful, wonderful combination. That said, let us now go to phone calls. There is something the matter with your fin. Well, <laughs> no, no. Rosemary's on the line. What can I do for you, Rosemary, from St. Cloud, Minnesota? Hi, Father Simon. Yes, I have a question related to, first of all, Ecclesiastics 3, um, 192021. You know that's the Old Testament. It speaks to, um, you know, uh, life has no meaning for either meaning man or beast. But then you go yes. into John three thirteen and go into yes. fifteen and eighteen, and it says, you know, and and no one, and no one has ever gone up to heaven except the Son of Man who came down from earth. But then it speaks to no one who does not believe in God will not have eternal life. But those who believe in the Son of God are not judged. Mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. confused by all this. Well, 
remember, I don't know if you've heard me say this. I say it to the point of being tedious. When you see the word believe, when I hear the word believe, I think I am of the opinion that. I believe it will rain tomorrow. I am of the opinion that it will rain tomorrow. That's not what the word means in Greek. The word means trust. All those who trust will not be judged. Uh, we read in the letter of the Hebrews that without trust, it's impossible to please God. If you're a parent, you know the day that your kids stop trusting you is one of the worst days in your life. Where are you going? Why do you want to know? Well, I just want to know where you are. Well, you don't trust me. No, child, it's you who don't trust me. You see, it's a painful moment when children stop trusting their parents. Well, it's without trust, it's impossible to please God. But when you trust him, you become like a little child. And now the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, a vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is human life without Christ. That That is a book written before the cross, written before the cross was revealed, the perfect and infinite love of God. So that there are books in the Old Testament that are really pessimistic and say there's no hope. Without Christ, there is no hope. And that's what's being said, essentially, in in uh, the Gospel of, of John, in, in, in the text that you quote. Let's, let's see where I put it. Oh, where did I put it? Uh, it's here somewhere. Yeah, John 3.23 uh, and following. That's where we are. Um, no, that's not where we are. But does that answer your question? Yes, it, it does. But the judgment thing, I thought there, there was judgment, you know, at the end of our life. Well, there is. They shall not be judged for the things about which they trusted by, you know, that, yeah, yeah, we'll all face the judgment. We'll all, all things will be revealed. The scripture says we shall know as we are known. But a, a judgment to condemnation for those who trusted God isn't going to happen. Uh, uh, I right. think that's what's being right. said, that, that that if we trusted God genuinely, we're not going to be condemned. Uh, you know, sin not, is a refusal to trust way. God. Have you ever thought about that? When I sin, I'm arguing with God. God says, don't do that. So, no, you're crazy, God. I, that's fine. I'm going to do that. It's, that's a good idea. Trust me. It's a bad idea. I'm not going to trust you. I'm going to do what I want to do. It sounds like a spoiled child, which is what we are. So about those things, we will be judged. Uh, but, okay. but when we say, oh, I trust you, I say, see, look, you did the right thing. You stayed out of trouble. So there. Does that help? So yeah, so I guess I can just say we'll we'll if you know we'll not be condemned if we believe yeah, in Christ. If, and, if, if and not, remember, God. careful the word believe. It doesn't mean we yeah, join right, the club exactly. because we're of trust. this theological yeah. opinion. We yeah. won't be condemned if we right. have trusted Christ. But remember, okay. trusting Christ isn't just saying, "Oh, he's going to do it." No, it's trusting to trust Christ means to obey him. You if you oh, okay. trust your parents, yeah. you obey them. This isn't just a matter Thank of you. positive mental attitude, but we must, if we trust, oh, I trust you, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. But I trust you. No, you don't trust me. So obedience is trust that has hands and feet. And it isn't, faith and works are not contradictory. They are complementary. Does that help? That helps. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for calling in. God bless you. All right, God let us go too. to our next caller, who is John. We do have, I think we'll have room for a few more calls, 888-914-9149. John, who's calling from uh, 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 Encinitas, California. What can I do for you, John? 
Salve TV Pater. TV, TV, TV Salve. That's Latin for hello there. Nin- <laughs> Go on. Nin- 1976, uh, Eucharistic Congress, Philadelphia, RFK Stadium, final event, the Estatio Orbis Mass, and uh, Bishop Sheen gave the homily in front of uh, priests, cardinals, and everybody else. And he started his homily by confessing that when he walks into a church now, he feels like Mary Magdalene. Yes. And uh, about 100,000 people groaned that he was confessing unfaithfulness. And then he went to cry out with Mary Magdalene, they have lain my Lord, and I know not where. Where, yes. What do you think of that, I I thought of that exact quote when I walked into the seminary chapel, the seminary graduate school where I had taught, and they kept moving the tabernacle around, trying to find just the right place. At that point, it was behind a forest of potted palms. <laughs> I thought exactly that quote from Bolton yeah. Jeans. They have taken my well, Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. <laughs> when I yes. was in the seminary in Kentucky, St. Pius X, which no longer exists, we had in the basement a beautiful place for Eucharistic adoration, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 24-7. And then I was at uh, Holy Trinity Seminary in Dallas, Texas. I stayed for three years for the Diocese of Gallup, New Mexico, with mm-hmm. Bishop Jerome Hansbridge, who was a great saint, great saint. Well, you know, you, I can just, I just give thanks to God that Eucharistic devotion has come back roaring. Um, if you had told me, when I, 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 I taught in the seminary uh, that I attended at the college level, I taught Greek and Latin for many, many years, and uh, uh, the rector, uh, um, I'm, uh, I don't want to mention the name because he might be, he might be looked down on for his virtue. He was truly a virtuous, <laughs> good man. Well, um, he restored Eucharistic adoration. He restored uh, Stations of the Cross, Rosary devotion. And as I, I taught in that seminary, I thought I never would have believed when I was going through the seminary that this would all be back. Not just back, but back in spades. It was a, a wonderful blessing, a wonderful blessing. Uh, um, so things, in a way, are better than they once were, but the struggle is not over by any means. And, um, again, I've said it about five times in the past week. Uh, statistics are that about 24 25% of Catholics believe in the real presence. And someone, when I said that, someone uh, corrected me, saying, No, Father, 100% of Catholics believe in the real presence. If, you're not, if you don't believe in the real presence... You're not a Catholic. So, well, thanks for calling in, John. That is a, I do love that quote. They have taken my Lord, and I do not know where they, they have lain him. Oh, Mary Magdalene syndrome. All right, thanks for calling. Let's go to Michael from Bakersfield, California. Michael, what can I do for you? Yes, Father. Uh, John uh, 1034 says, it is, is it not said in your law? And that's from Psalm 80, yes. 82, 6. My thought is, was Jesus? How is Jesus treating Psalms? Kind of thing. How do I mean? I love the Psalms. I love oh, one yeah. verse every, all, every day. So, uh, how or is Jesus just being sarcastic here or something? No, no, no. Jesus was never sarcastic. He could be humorous, but I don't think he was ever sarcastic. He's making the point. Okay, what is the What is the text? What's the text? Uh, the text number? John. Uh, John ten thirty four. Let me let me just pull that up so I can make sure I'm not misquoting 
the text because one doesn't want to. You know, have you ever heard the saying, "A text without a context is a pretext"? All right, is, <laughs> is it not written in your law? We don't want pretext. No, no, no. Yes, the the uh, um, you know we used to call them Bible bullets. Um, the thing that interests me about this is that he calls the Psalms the law. Yeah, that's mine too. Yeah, yeah, that that's interesting. Uh, what Jesus is saying is that that you know, and this I think is our. Let me explain to the listeners. The law for an Orthodox Jew is simply the first five books of the Bible. They call it the Torah, which means the instruction. Uh, um, and uh, those were those words. An Orthodox Jew believes that those words were literally dictated to Moses, even the parts about his own death, even the parts about his own death. They are infallible. They are inerrant. They cannot be changed. That's the law. Jesus is clearly including the Psalms in as inspired scripture. And from him, we get that idea. Now, there were different groups that thought that the Sadducees believed only in the Torah, the first five books. The Pharisees believed in the law and the prophets. And Jesus, Jesus, you know, that line on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the Psalms. And Jesus says, Essentially, he's saying, you know, and we believe this, that the he in the Psalms is Jesus. That when it says, uh, happy the man who does not walk in the way of scoffers, that's Jesus. Uh, uh, Why have you forsaken me? That's Jesus. So he's including the Psalms in the law, and we take our cue from him. That's how I look at this. And I hope that helps. If it doesn't help, stay tuned, because Drew will definitely help.